Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then, and you're re- Enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email from a woman that I had hoped would call me and we could talk about her issue. So I want to talk to you a little bit. You know, it's scary to talk on the air, and I get that. So her email says, Carol. I listen to your show all the time and really appreciate the guests, the content, and your candid answers, not not, not alone your dedication to this field. When I first discovered my husband's addiction, I read and listened to as much information as I could find. Early on, I repeatedly read that you should stay with the essay and give it at least two years. Okay, I'm going to call her... Jody, Jody, that is not something you heard me say. The truth of the matter is being a partner of a sex addict means that you get to decide exactly how long you need to give it. And if you don't feel safe or stable, then you need a therapeutic separation and or a divorce. So I know there are several counselors, theorists, CSATs out there that will say stay two years. And I understand their um, belief is give him time to get healthy or her, depending on who the sex addict is. But I just want to clarify, you haven't heard me say two years because I don't teach that, I don't talk that, and I believe that the partner gets to make that decision. That's Sometimes is a request from people that do disclosures. You know, disclosures can be so traumatic to hear the entire truth. They will say, and this is the guidelines I've heard many people say, the partner needs to give it at least a year and the addict needs to give it two years because they need to get in solid recovery. 
But I promise you, that's not me. I want you to do what you need to do. Okay. So Jody said um, that she has read and heard from almost all sources that a large percentage of couples recovering from this awful situation stay together. As I mentioned, okay, as I mentioned several times, I have been researching this addiction and what to do about it. Now, I have said that it is, it's amazing that if I have a couple that just come in because he or she has been unfaithful, oftentimes they'll want to leave the other person. But there's something about sex addiction that I think is compelling to the partner. And the partner says, I get that he or she has an addiction and I'm willing to see if this person will get healthy. I realized that it wasn't about me. It was about a compulsion and I'm willing to stick it out for a while. Okay, so I have said that's what I've seen. So Jody says, interestingly, most of the experts that have been guest speakers, writers on this topic, and even my therapist divorced their essay at some point later in their relationship. After noticing this trend, I decided to research divorce rates of couples battling sex addiction. There is plenty of information about divorce rates in the general population, but there it was nothing out there stating the divorce rates of SA couples. This leads me to think that the positive statistics toted about couples facing SA and staying married is due to the partner being told to stay for at least two years. Do you have any real stats on how long couples really stay together? Thank you for all you do. And no, Jody, I do not. Boy, that would be a fascinating research um, project. And I promise you that I will take that to AppSats and see if we can't create some uh, a survey that would gather information to see how long people stay together. And if they do stay together or if they decide that it is not worth it. Because here's what I know to be true. You said that your therapist didn't stay with her sex addict husband. And you believe that the only reason the couples may be staying together is because they think they need to. So hopefully on this show, I can say to partners, and you know I have that partner betrayal recovery show on Thursdays at 2 o'clock. I will also say it there. What we want the partner to do is to feel safe. That is our goal. And let's face it, when you get that devastating information, you go into shock. You go into trauma brain. You don't feel safe. And if your hunch is right that people stay together because the, the readings, the sex addiction information says to do that, well, that would make sense to me, even if I don't. Um, what I know is that, believe it or not, you're in the driver's seat as of the minute you find out what's gone on. 
And would I like all couples to recover from this? Of course I would. That's me being a therapist wanting marriages to stay together if he's in good recovery, if you know the truth, and if the two of you can compromise and negotiate a lifestyle that makes you feel safe while he continues his recovery and shows you empathy. Because he's got to have those relational skills if the marriage is really going to ever um, be emotionally gratifying. So that's a long-winded question to your email that you sent me on February 14th. And boy, I appreciate your kind words. I'm wondering where you stand in all this. So, Jody, again, a fake name, um, keep me posted. Let me know how you're doing. And I know that this kind of thing can be really tough. Um, And when I say you're in the driver's seat, you may laugh at me because you'll go, "Uh, this is a seat I never wanted to drive in, and I don't feel like I'm in the driver's seat. I feel like I'm reacting to my environment. But truly, I say the partners make decisions based on what they think, their intellect, what they feel, their emotions, and what their intuition tells them, their gut. And we know that when you first find out about betrayal, your brain has probably gone offline because that's a stress response. And I'm forever telling my clients, sex addicts, partners, or just clients that come in with depression and anxiety and parenting problems, I say, out of those three, don't go with your emotions (laughs) because emotions usually get you to do things that are not necessarily healthy. So, Jody, I'm going to ask you, what is your gut saying about your marriage? Are you seeing progress? Is it enough to stay? Do you have some of your own boundaries to keep yourself safe? And more than that, I'm going to ask you, do you have some expectations set up that will help you to maintain your own self-respect? Because, you know, so oftentimes the partner carries so much pain and shame, shame about am I doing the right thing, what am I showing my kids, if my kids don't know, what am I hiding from my kids. I mean, there's a lot of issues you're going through. And if that's the case, get yourself to a partner specialist who's trauma-sensitive. That means go to APSAS, A-P-S-A-T-S dot org, and find somebody that's close to you. Because you'll get much better advice than if you just go to somebody who doesn't understand the nature of this beast. Um, And I call it a beast, but I also got to say, this is the most rewarding work in the world because you're dealing with people that have really hit rock bottom. And most of the time, They're willing to work. And when I see people who've made really bad decisions and they've hurt lots of people and yet they're ready to work, they're ready to take their life to the next level, wow, then I am impressed with the courageousness, the um, ability to empathize, and the humility 
that has to occur to get through this addiction. So that's what I have to say. And I'm wondering for my listening audience, I know you may be traumatized because you probably went through Valentine's Day. And that's always a tough day, and it even gets worse when something like this has occurred. I mean, it's hard to celebrate. It's hard for the addict to celebrate. It's hard for the partner to celebrate. Um, Now, I got to tell you, if you get into post-traumatic growth, it can feel like a renewal of sorts. But until you're there, whether you're needing to feel safer and be more stabilized or you're grieving big time, what you had, what you thought you had, what you wanted to have, what you don't have, what you wish you had, and what you're fearful you'll never have. Um, the day that celebrates romance and love can be incredibly painful. Uh, I, I work with a lot of men, and I've heard a lot of men doing some very special things to um, make up for the loss of the loss of dependability, the loss of being who you are. You know, that is by far the scariest thing about this disorder. It's not just the acting out. It's that people go, the addict says, who am I? What have I done? How do I get better? And, and the partner says, oh, my gosh, who was I living with? Who is this man or woman that would betray me? So if you had a hard Valentine's Day, I bet you're glad you're over it. And if you had a good Valentine's Day, congratulations. You deserve it. Now, tonight we've got a really interesting show because it is about identity. And what I really love about Rob, this man who has really thought long and hard about identity, is that he believes that identity is directly related to surrendering. And, you know, you think about identity and you think about what do do I have to do to prove to myself who I am? And Rob maintains that it's the process of surrendering that really creates identity. And so I can't wait to talk to him about that. Um, it's an interesting concept, and so I want you to have an open mind as you as you ask him, as you think about what he has to offer. And and again, it is an amazing concept to surrender. I know in the twelve step process, surrendering really the first three steps involves surrendering, and when somebody really surrenders to their higher power. They allow their higher power to take the lead, and that allows them to know better what to do. So I'm really interested in this concept of identity, and and I thought, you know, we have never talked about that on the show. So I'm going to ask Rob. Hey, Rob, thank you so much for sharing this really important subject of identity. How are you tonight? I'm doing well. Thanks. Uh, thanks for asking. Yeah. Now, 
you want people to understand that the only way to surrender to one's true self is to surrender to what God wants them to be. And when that surrender occurs, the addict then is, if you will, liberated and can follow his true legacy. So would you explain a little bit about what identity means to you? Yeah, so, um, you know, early on in recovery, I had a, uh, working the 12 steps the first time, I had a guy tell me, we want to say no to this addiction, but we need to say no with a better yes. And I didn't understand what he meant then, but I got kind of tied up in um, recognizing the better yes is actually a new identity. And what I mean by that is when we come into this program, I, I felt certain a certain way about myself. I was a liar. I was a cheater. I was a sex addict. I was all these labels and these identities that was put on me. And when I started becoming free of my addiction and I became uh, clean and was working the program, I didn't know exactly what I was then. Am I still a, an addict? Am I still a sex addict? Am I still a cheater? You know, I haven't done it in a long time now. Who am I now? And I kind of think why he was pointing me to is to finding who I really am at the core without this addiction. You know, what did this addiction rob me from being? And that better yes, the better person, the better me, is wrapped up in uh, finding out who I was supposed to be in the first place before this addiction kind of stole my identity from me and put all these other ones on me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what did you discover about yourself? You know, aside from the um, addict, who did you figure out that you were? Yeah, so it took a long trip uh, and a lot of work down uh, the past and currently and the future. And I had to unwrap that. Um, I've heard the analogy of an onion, you know, that you unwrap a layer at a time and you find out more about who you are as you get closer to the middle. So all I had to do is I had to go back in my past and, and find out where my identity came from, you know, who assigned it to me. Uh, what I found out in, in my own recovery is I'm very, my recovery is very, very faith-based now. You know, I, I found out my identity was given to me from my higher power. It wasn't given to me uh, by from parents, from my spouse, from my peers, even from uh, counselors. It was given to me from my higher power. Now, I needed counselors uh, to help me dig out who that identity really is, and I needed to be transparent with my spouse, parents, and, and others to unwrap who that identity I was given from. But the core of who that identity is comes from my higher power. And for me, that's uh, Jesus. You know, he gave me my identity. And what I need to do is kind of wipe away all the other false identities I put on myself and reveal who I really truly am. 
And so then explain to me, um, you really feel like that surrendering process is important to get there. Help me to understand the steps that one might take to understand their own sense of identity. Okay, so when I was in addiction and heavy addiction, I thought that the way I reacted to things based on my own um, knowledge and understanding and reaction, I thought that's what made me unique from other people. Um, And I thought surrendering at that time, to me, surrendering sounded like, well, I'm just going to turn into this, you know, um, proper, prim and proper, you know, church guy, you know, the, the nice guy down the street, you know, the guy that never says a bad word, the guy who's ready to help old ladies and, and you know, and the guy that never has a crossword for anybody. I thought surrendering to um, this magical power somehow took my identity away from me and made me what the church or my wife or everybody else wanted me to be. And that wasn't the truth. That was kind of a lie. Um, The fact of the matter is, if my identity is from my higher power, if he's the one that gives me my unique identity, then every time I surrender to him, I'm actually reclaiming my true identity. And so if I surrender to God and do as he asked me to do, I'm actually surrendering to my true identity, and that's what makes me unique. Because God's identity for me is not like anybody else's. And it doesn't have to be, you know, Mr. Rogers or the nice guy down the street. God made warriors too. And I can be that too. Um, What I have to do, though, is um, surrender to whatever he wishes to make me, not what I think I want to be and not what other people are trying to be. So surrendering to me is allowing my higher power to define me the way he wants to. And and there's a there's a big process to getting to there. It's not as easy as it as it sounds. Yeah, I get that. So I know that you believe that one of the ways to begin to understand one's identity is to look at your past. So let's go through some of those steps that, you know, can help somebody really take a deep dive into what their identity is all about. For Yeah, for my – for the way I um, went through recovery – the first thing was I had to look back at my past. I had to find out, okay, if, I'm, if I've fallen off this path that God has for me, if I'm not surrendering to him and I'm putting on these um, false identities, uh, the author John Eldridge calls them the posers, um, where, where did I start to do that? Where did I start putting on these other identities? And for me, it had to do with trauma. I had to look at my past trauma and find out, you know, how that shaped my identity. You know, I created these 
um, identities to get through life. You know, they, they kind of worked for me. They got me, they helped me survive, but they weren't my true self. So um, I had to look at the past. I had to dig through my trauma and find out who defined me in the past and, you know, what traumas defined me, what events defined me, and what things took my identity to a direction other than where God intended it. That was a part of my journey. Okay, so now knowing that that was a part of your journey, what information or message did you get from God about that? Well, the that? message, yeah, the message I got was that um, I didn't grow up in an environment around um, faith. I didn't grow up in an environment around um, where, you know, the nice guy next door has much of a chance. I grew up kind of in a violent um you know, kind of a violent upbringing, you know. There was a lot of fighting, and uh, I got, you know, picked on a lot, and I was drinking at an early age, like uh, 14, and it was a culture very ripe uh, for um, for alcohol abuse, sexual abuse, and all, you know, all of that stuff. To survive, I kind of had to learn how to play the game, so to speak, you know, and I had, um, I was, uh, there was some neglect, uh, there was abuse, and so I didn't feel like, um, to survive it, I created the persona that I didn't need anybody. I didn't, I couldn't rely on anybody, therefore I didn't need anybody. Um, I was told many times, if you want something done, do it yourself. So I never, I never learned how to ask for help. Um, I never really felt like I was abused or anything because I, people that had it worse than I had. So I minimized a lot of the things that happened to me and, and figured, you know, my mantra was, if it doesn't kill me, it makes me stronger. And the truth of the matter was I was putting a hard shell around myself and I was becoming an unfeeling person. I was becoming a person who wasn't in touch with my emotions. Um, and it was really hard for anybody to get in to really know me. Well, you know, it's interesting you said that you learned how not to depend on anybody and to take care of your needs yourself. Because one of the things we look at in couples, uh, sex addicts and partners, we look at each one individually and we say, what is their attachment style? And, Rob, you are describing an attachment style called dismissive. And that's really where you couldn't count on anybody early on. And as a result, you learn to take care of yourself. But the problem with that is that it affects your ability to really attach to and relate to other people, and I do believe that's what happened to you. Yeah, it is, and it also made it where I was unable to ask for my needs. Um, I didn't, so when my needs weren't met, and I would try to meet them myself, I would do them, you know, in ways that weren't appropriate because I wasn't mature enough to do it yet. <laughs> so... Um, it really created an attachment that was dismissive and also avoidant. Um, 
because I didn't want to get hurt again, so I wouldn't let people in. Um, and it made it very hard for my wife in our marriage. Well, I can imagine so. And it's almost like I would suspect any wife would say to herself, what is wrong with this marriage? What am I doing that's not getting true to him? Why is he avoiding true emotional intimacy? Yeah, that's true. And, and a big part of my recovery is learning how I, the ways that I avoided intimacy and overcoming those habits, I guess you could call them, that I had or these ways of dealing with things that would isolate myself and would avoid intimacy. Yeah, and so at what point did you figure that out? Well, I went to an intensive um, with Doug Weiss, and he um, coined the phrase intimacy anorexia, which basically means that whatever uh, means I use, the the game that I, the name of the game, so to speak, is space, that I keep space between me and other people. And there's uh, many ways I do it, you know, and no matter what happens or what behaviors I have, if, I, if I'm creating space between me and my spouse, that's a, you know, intimacy behavior. It's me, it's the anorexic behavior. So I had, um, I read some books by him, uh, went to intensive, did some counseling with him, and learned the ways that I have avoided people and uh, dismissive and all those traits that I had, you know, withholding uh, love and withholding emotion and just, uh, you know, pretty much anything I could do to keep from actually being truly intimate um, in a relational sense uh, with my spouse. So this intensive that you went to with Doug Wise helped you understand why you were um, anorexic, intimacy anorexic, and what kinds of things did you have to do to develop that emotional connection? Well, one of the things is he um, has a practice called the three dailies where uh, I share two emotions. My wife shares two emotions. I share two appreciations for her. She shares two with me, and then we pray together. And we did that for a while, and there's also the behaviors are mapped out, and so I monitor myself each day and make sure that I'm not doing any of the things that are, you know, create space. Um, another way to look at it is um, I don't do any avoidant behaviors. In other words, I lean into my wife even when there's times that I don't, um, you know, that every fiber in my body tells me to turn her away and run. I don't. I stay there. I look her in the eye and I lean in and I connect with her. So it's connection over avoidance as another way to look look at it in a different kind of uh, study that I've done. Um, And that's a little bit more into the 
uh, emotional focus type stuff that we're working on now together. Okay, and so I know that you said that in helping people, helping sex addicts specifically, figure out their identity, that you have um, you've looked at the methods that can help them to categorize that. And the first one was past, and you say, do the work to look at where you weaved off that path in the first place. We have to know where we fell off to get a bearing to where we are. And so Correct. that was when you realized that you weren't getting your needs met and you were being bullied and you were not in a safe situation and you decided to take care of your needs by yourself, right? Yes, that that is correct. And that's where I learned the reasons and, and why I avoided intimacy and the reasons, you know, why I had the dismissive attachment style. All that was dug up through that work into the past. Got it. And then past traumas that help define our identity make us who we are today until we decide to change that. And so you said, obviously, the book Unwanted was a a real helpful um, book to move you into understanding not only why you developed this style of attachment, but also what you needed to do to change. Yeah, it did. It started me down the path of, of doing some real work to change. And that's where, you know, I, I hate to use the word accountability because um, we're more into accessibility now. I really want to know, you know, I want to have access into your life. As, and I'm talking in a peer group now. But there is some accountability there, too, um, where I share with the guys in a recovery group, you know, how things are going, if I've avoided my wife, if I haven't avoided her, you know, if I've leaned in or not. We kind of need each other to keep us in check on that. Now, what do you mean we kind of need each other to keep us well, in check? Because I know... Yeah, we, oh, go ahead. we don't kind of. We need each other. <laughs> So there you go. I'm okay. a, yeah. I've been yeah, in a couple of recovery groups. Well, I know that you said that we need to heal out trauma and past wounds so it stops identifying us now. And it's like you've got to be able to move beyond that and stop reacting to the woundedness. And then you talk about the present. Can you talk a little bit more about what you believe helps to create that new sense of identity in the present? Yeah, and that's kind of where uh, the recovery groups um, that I've been involved with are and why men need other men in recovery in groups uh, to work with each other, whether it be in meetings, 12-step meetings, or um, the men in the battle that I'm a part of, um, or other faith-based groups, or whatever it is, you need other men to walk along beside you. Because when you dig up where your identity was and where you've fallen off the track, 
the next step is to not let anybody else identify you now. Uh, in other words, you know, don't let your um, spouse, your counselor, your pastor, your friends, anybody else identify who you are now because your identity actually comes from your higher power. I mean, in my, in my case. So if I'm identified by my higher power, then I have to have men that can help me recognize that. So when I start acting like, uh, you know, reacting to woundedness from the past, there's guys that can say, hey, wait, that's not really you. Um, you know, you're not, you're not that person anymore. We need other men to pro- help pull us up because it's hard to go. We don't, it's nice to hear the stories of a guy who's, well, you know, I prayed about it and I was delivered and now I'm, I'm a new man and, like, it happens instantly. It really doesn't work that way. Um, it works over time consistently doing the things we need to do and other people recognizing that. And when we're in this betrayal, our spouse isn't always the person that's going to recognize those small changes in identity because they're dealing with their own trauma. They're dealing with their own um, betrayal trauma and so forth. So it's hard for them to see that. But when we go, when we check in with men in a in a meeting in a group, they see us for who we really are. We get to be honest for the first time in those meetings. I mean, I I know I did. For the first time in my life, I was totally honest with about who I was and what I've done. And those men accepted me when I was honest like that. And they said, yeah. A lot of them said, yeah, me too. And so. That's where I could be my real self. So I saw where I was, where I got off the track. I was totally honest in the present with who I really am now. And that's when I can start really growing. Well, that makes sense. And I do believe that there are probably three factors that feed into that. And that's why support groups and Bible studies and faith-based groups are so helpful. One is you're in there with other men that have the same feelings. They feel the pain, they feel the shame, and they really, for the first time, don't feel like they are alone on this journey. And I think that really helps to provide the safety to create identity. The second thing I think that happens is that you guys all support each other and hold each other accountable. Like you said, they hold you accountable to looking at yourself and not running from yourself or from the people you love. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I do. I agree with that. And I, I think you hit a really major topic. You, you know, we could do a whole show about shame because one of the biggest identity stealers is shame. And that's one of the places in those safe areas, and it has to be a safe place where a guy can overcome the shame because shame will steal our identity from us quicker than anything. And so what would you describe shame as being? 
shame is believing, to me, there's some better definitions, I'm sure, but shame is believing that I'm less than what I really am. Believing that nobody would really love me if they really knew who I really was. I mean, that's how it felt like to me. There's probably better Mm -hmm. definitions, but that's what it felt like to me. Right. Well, yes, and certainly when somebody feels shamed, they don't feel deserving. They don't feel like they're a good person. They feel like they're a bad person. And, And so part of being in a group and living in the present means that for the first time ever, you're going to be authentic. And I know that you quoted uh, Brene Brown in a paper you wrote and said that authenticity is the daily practice of letting go of who we are, who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are. So can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so another author, John Eldridge, that wrote Wild at Heart, um, says it, he talked, says it this way, he says it's posing. You know, taking off the masks and, and not posing for who we think the world needs to see in us and being who we really, truly are. Um, so to be authentic, to me, before recovery, before these groups, I was scared to death of it because I thought if I was authentic, then nobody would love me. Nobody would care for me. You know, they would think I was something less worthy of their time. But then I get in these groups and I'm totally authentic and I'm still accepted. You know, I, I am who I am. And I have to add in here too, because not every recovery group is, is faith based. But what I also, what I found in my recovery is a healthy dose of um, Bible reading and New Testament reading and studying of Paul the Apostle and realizing that, you know, this guy was killing Christians and God still used him to write most of the New Testament, that if he can be turned around and he can be authentic and real, I can too. So I think that part of it, having men accept me, and then also a good, strong um, scripture study are both really where I get, where I got kind of my base to overcome uh, the shame and be authentic. I knew I wasn't going to become, you know, Paul or an apostle or anything like that. But what I did know was that I'm not too broken, that I can't be fixed. And the other men sitting across from me in these meetings Many of them were as broken as I was, and they had found freedom from their unwanted sexual behavior as well. So I could follow a path that they're doing. So being authentic was a lot easier to do when I got involved with a group that had men that had done some of the same stuff that I had done and had gotten free. I think it would have been tough if I'd have been, it would have been impossible if I'd have stayed in isolation and just did, whether it be Bible study or Bible reading or anything like that. I had to be with men that had been down the road that I'd been and had made it through. 
Well, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you really have done a lot of research and reading and praying and journaling. And you have really wanted to stay connected because you know that that fellowship and that intimacy that you're building in your groups is going to transfer, hopefully, to your family relationships and to the people that you love. Um, I know you quoted unwanted, and you said, the more you know yourself, the more intimate connection you can have with others. And the more connected you are with others, the more you will discover who you truly are. So it is a cycle that is a win-win for everybody involved, right? It is. And the way he kind of, the way that to unwrap that a little bit, what he says in unwanted is, we only know our true identity in relation to other people. Um, if I'm isolated, I don't really know who I really am. Because, you know, as we are a, um, you know, as, as people, we are a community-based organism. I mean, we're supposed to live in community with each other. And if we're not in community, if we're not around other people, we really don't know who we are. Okay, so you warn people, or at least you warn addicts, hey, be careful who you connect to and who you open your own sense of identity to. So can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I love Brene Brown's quote that we, um, hearing our story is a privilege. And those who qualify are the only ones that you must qualify to hear our story. And the way she explains it is, if you're to be open and vulnerable and share with somebody, to qualify, they have to be open and vulnerable to share with you as well. In other words, you have to have some skin in the game. Um, so we have to be in community with each other to know, very much what it said in Unwanted, to know who I truly am, I have to be in, connected with other people. But those other people must also be people that qualify to hear my story. So they've got to be as open and vulnerable with me. Um, I kind of look at, the way I look at things, if, if I'm in, if I'm connected with somebody and they try to, point my identity to anything other than, you know, a son of, of God, if they try to point my identity in any way other than that, they probably don't qualify to hear my story. And that might sound a little harsh, but, you know, I am a son of God. I am loved by him. And if somebody tries to define me in any other way, um, then they're trying to take my identity somewhere it's not supposed to be. So being open and, and vulnerable to somebody, I'm expecting them to do the same with me. Right. And, you know, it is so very true that if that's not reciprocal, you can't really have an intimate relationship. And then your vulnerability is wasted on that person because they can't, respond to you in the same way, right? 
Yeah, and the other part of that, too, is it takes the judgment away. You know, if I'm open and vulnerable to somebody, I'm not going to be judging them. And and vice versa, the same with them. If they're open and vulnerable with me and sharing, you know, their whole heart with me, they're not going to put me in a a place of judgment. And it, it overcomes that. And that's one of the things that, uh, fuels the shame with guys is, you know, and especially with this addiction, that society is somewhat judgmental about it. Um, I mean, it was the 70s, I think, when Patrick Carnes wrote the book Out of the Shadows, and believe it or not, this one's still in the shadows uh, because there's just so much judgment around it. Um, but it's really not much different than any other addiction. I've tried a few on, trust me, they're the same. Right, no, I get that, absolutely. So then one of your questions you ask people to to think about, because again, you said the creation of identity really depends on surrendering, surrendering to God or a higher power. So why do you believe it's important to let God define us? as opposed to us defining ourselves? Well, because my beliefs um, is that, and I I get these beliefs from um, studying the scripture and, and, you know, listen to my pastor and listen to other men of faith. My belief is that God created me for a specific person. He didn't just want somebody like Rob. You know, you know, I'm going to create this guy like Rob, and I want him to be, you know, so tall and have this personality. No, he's got a purpose for me on this earth. There's a reason I'm here. And he created me for that one specific person, and that's where my identity is. That's where my uniqueness is. And so for me, that's the, net, that's the third leg of the identity thing is the future, is what is my purpose? You know, once I've dug through my past and I'm no longer reacting to it, and now I'm not letting anybody else define me now except God above, and now i got to find out what is that identity? What is that purpose he's designed me for? Um, and the rest is and just serve that purpose. And that's where the surrendering comes into. When we finally get through that, to where we're looking into the future is like God designed me for a purpose. I mean, He put me here on for a reason, and I think I kind of know what that is now. Now I can surrender to that instead of trying to make this world the way I want it. I can let it be what God wants it to be. So that takes a, a deeper walk of faith, and and I, you know, I encourage men to find good men of faith to help them with that journey. Um, you need to read and stuff like that, but that's not found in a book. That's found in prayer, uh, meditation, good uh, relationship with other men, men of Christ. That makes a lot of sense. And so as we begin to wind up for tonight, I'm wondering how would you define future? You know, we're looking at identity, and what would you tell men that are willing to go through this four-step process, if you will, 
what would you tell them about future? It's based on faith. And when you find, you know, some guys say you find your calling or you surrender to what God wants you to do. Um, What's hard about that is a lot of times we don't know where it's going to go. It looks like a path that goes into who knows what. Um, We're letting go of control. We're surrendering control to God, not ourselves, so we don't know where it's going to end up. So that's where we have to dig a deeper faith. We have to trust that whatever this that God's put me on earth to do, it's going to be good. It'll be good for me. I'll be okay. You know, I'll serve him well, and he'll take me to a place that um, ultimately will be a better place than I've been. So the future is all about faith. And my favorite uh, quote from the Bible um, is, we walk by faith, not by sight, um, from Second Corinthians. And, you know, that's kind of how every day I, I start. I have to walk by faith and not by sight. Because sometimes through this addiction and this recovery pro- process and, and this, uh, you know, searching for identity, which is not an easy topic we can really discuss in an hour, so I sound like I feel like I was talking all over the place. But uh, sometimes that's really hard to do, is to have faith that that's going to be okay. Well, no, no, no. I think you've made this very, very clear, and I so appreciate you sharing your time because I'm telling you, I, I believe that the men and women that I work with want to know themselves better. They want more intimacy. They want more authenticity. And they're not exactly sure how to do that. So you gave them some good direction tonight. And, Rob, I just really appreciate all the work you put forth in our community. Well, thank you. I appreciate all the help you've given me to this point. So, And uh, all the men of the community, because I was made by the men I was around. And I was made by God above, but, I mean, I was able to surrender to him thank, thanks to the men around me and there's a lot of guys that that have helped me on my path to to find my way and I really appreciate I know it all to those guys oh yeah I appreciate that you've worked hard and I get what you're saying you're saying again it's one of those principles that you outlined and that is really pay attention to the people that you're hanging with and make sure that they are they're working with you to support you on this journey and not against you. So I just appreciate you. I appreciate your work, and thank you so much. All right. Thank you. All right. Make it a good one. That was Robin. As you can tell, he has really worked hard on creating identity. And, um, He wanted to pass that along because he knows how difficult that can be to understand and know yourself. So that's it for me for tonight. And, hey, thank you, thank you, thank you for hanging out and being with me. You know I love it. And, you know, this is tough work, but it's also incredibly rewarding. You men and women work harder than anybody I know. So. As I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And 
if you're wanting to do something nice for your wife, you might um, send her to Italy to hang out with me in July. Go to sexhelpwithcarolthecoach.com and uh, look at the the trip that we're going to offer to help our partners feel better about themselves and know their own post-traumatic growth. And I'll see you next week. Hey, listeners, are you ready for a little healing and restoration after betrayal? Hi, I'm Carol the Coach, and we're living for Tuscany, Italy on July 25th through August 1st, and I would love for you to join us. There is no denying that I want you to find your post-traumatic growth, and one of the ways you can do that is by settling in and experiencing life on a different level. We're going to be staying in a beautiful traditional Italian farmhouse with seven bedrooms located between Florence and Siena. The farmhouse has a pool on a 625-acre winery. The tour is your opportunity to regain your life and treat yourself to adventure, nurturance, and personal growth. And I will be providing morning workshops and a free coaching session just for you. So if you're ready to reclaim your life and live the life you deserve, go to Sex Help with Carol the Coach or Street View Adventure Travel and sign up. There are only eight spots left, so treat yourself to an international experience of connection, reflection, laughter, and support with other women. And just know I can't wait to meet you. So arrivederci, and we'll see you next week for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Make it a good week.